please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your presence. Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, we thank you that you are in our midst right now, that we are your body, that you walk in our midst through the presence of your spirit, through your presence in each and every one of us, through your presence in these words that we have heard again. And we pray, Lord, that we would receive you and we would be with you who are so with us. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. This week I was in a class that um, talked about the interpretation of scripture. And one of the things that I noticed from the professor is that whenever he talked about scripture, he always said, holy scripture. He emphasized that quite a bit. I think one of the things that happens to me is a lot of times I, I'm, I'm so familiar with this book. Doesn't familiarity sometimes breed contempt? You know, you start to think, oh yeah, I heard that before. I know that, and it's just words. And these are not just words in the sense that, like, you could read, read any other book. These are the words of God. I mean, this is, this is divine, holy writ. And when we read it that way, when we begin to read it that way and receive it that way and hear it that way, then we begin to be changed because the words of God always result in life. They always do. God spoke creation into being. Jesus is the word of God. He redeems us back into life. He continues to speak, and through that speaking and his prayers in heaven, administers his own Holy Spirit to us so that we are alive in him, so that we can continue to resonate and hear that word and that truth which sets us free. That helped me because when I see the, um, the passage that I just read in the gospel, a lot of times I think, oh yeah, yeah you know, okay, I'm gonna, pre- I'm gonna preach on that. That seems like old hat. Well, I've all heard the Beatitudes, and um, my goodness, I, that's just not how it hit me this week. It hit me as like, God, you're breathing life into me through these words, and you're giving meaning where there was not meaning, right? This isn't boring. This is powerful. These are vitalizing words, and um, I'm just grateful for that. And uh, I, I wonder if that's how the, initially the disciples might have felt, but they realized the gravity of what's happening later, and there's some hints in the text about that. But, you know, Jesus has introduced himself. He was baptized. There was a revelation of who he is there, and then he begins to gather disciples around him, and then he's, um, he, he um, goes out and starts to heal people and starts to share things about the kingdom of God actually really being here which, of course, gets people excited when you think about that. I think we should still be excited about that. The kingdom of God is here. It's drawn near. It's here. And the king is here, and he's still present, and he's still operative in us through his word and spirit. And so then a massive number of people gather around him, and he sees the crowd, as it says in the beginning of our text. And so his decision is to sit down on the mountain and he opens up his mouth. It's an interesting setting. It actually speaks to something that would have really um, made light bulbs go off in the Jews because important things happen on mountains. For the Jews especially, they would remember that the last time God spoke to them was to Moses, his prophet, 
And then the words of God, the Torah, the divine words that the, the uh, sages and the, the rabbis would say were like flames that danced in heaven came down and they carved themselves onto the stones and they were imparted to Moses and he wrote them in the first five books of the Torah, but especially his Ten Commands. And that was on the mountain. That was on the holy mountain. Except that, that one had a cloud and lots of thunder and lots of lightning and it scared the Israelites out of their wits and they're like, you know, help us. We're not ready for that. So Moses goes up into it and he hears the words and then shares them. But man, has he changed. When he comes back down the mountain, he's so bright people can't look at him because he's encountered God. He's heard the living God speak words of life to him. Words about, this is, what, this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be like me. You're made in my image, return to me. And here's what it looks like. Worship me. Don't worship anything else. Honor your parents. Don't steal. Don't worship idols. He, he shows them what it means to be alive. And Moses has a lot of authority to say and share, like this is what God said, because he's so bright that people can't bear to bear look at him. He's shining with the glory of God. And so he has to put a veil over himself for a time so that they could even stand to be with him. And he's just a human being. But he's become so changed by receiving the presence of God and, and seeing his, the back of his presence and um, and hearing, with the, and hearing the words of the Lord from a conversation that he actually held on the holy mountain. And so here's Jesus, but it's bright as day, and instead of, you know, thinking of this as we're going up to a mountain and we're talking to God the Father, we're talking to Jesus, and he's actually taking the place of God, and so we're seeing a hint of who he really is. He sits down, which is a sign of authority, he sits in a seat of authority. It's a teaching authority. He is saying, I'm sitting in the place of God by that move, if you will, and saying, listen to these words. These are the words of God. And I'm giving you um, these words. And it's important to remember that these words actually are meant to direct our lives. I think one of the things that happens for us is that we, uh, we're so... Um, I think rightly taken with the grace of God that we could never have earned our way into his presence. And praise the Lord that at one point in church's history we, we recovered that truth. Everything in life as a, is a gift, but in particular we know that we need the gift of his blood. We need the gift of his impartation of his presence to us through his sacrifice. And so we're so aware of that and I think that's beautiful that sometimes we forget that what that means also is that we get to live the way that he wants us to and that in truth we want to when we're really ourselves. It's actually possible. There's actually a possibility. There's actually a potential, a power, a potency to live and he's actually invoking you in that process to do it in him. So one of the things I want to say right here at the outset, because I want to go through each of these words as, as briefly as we can, um, is that Jesus is speaking these words, and the words themselves are meant to impart a power. They're meant to impart and remind us of what it means that when we're in him who alone could fulfill the law, when we're baptized into him whose life is the source of our life, we can actually live in accordance with that. 
but we're not, we're not like machines. He's not just like installing some code in us so that we can then produce results automatically as if there's nothing like a personality or a will or a desire or, or, or intensity in us. He knows that we are made like him. He actually wants those things. He wants our love, he wants our desire, he wants our choosing, he wants us to be engaged. Now, we're sourced in him, but he wants us to collaborate. And in a way, we are now sacraments, if you will. Like sacraments are means of grace, but when the spirit comes within us, he makes it possible for our own will to participate in his divine will. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? When he comes by his spirit into us, that kind of wraps around our will and makes it possible to live in accordance with what he wants and made us to live like, right? So this is part of what um, I think Jesus is, is showing us when we work through these words. They're so short, but they're power-packed. And he's, he's saying it in such a way that is, it's engaging us, but at the same time, he's saying, I'm speaking it into you. Remember, when the Lord speaks, it's creative. When the Lord speaks, it generates things. So when he's speaking these words, receive it in such a way, if you can, through your imagination, that he's actually giving you power. Think of it as like he's starting up the nuclear power plant of your ability to live in this way, okay? All right, so we are looking at the first word here, and this is the first of eight words, and that's significant. And they lead into light. I think, you know, to the extent that Moses was somebody who was full of light, if we live through these steps that Matthew's outlining for us, that Jesus gave to the disciples, there's a way in which we enter into light. When we become like Jesus, we, we can begin to share that light, that meaning, that power, that divine reality in, in, in and through our lives. <clears throat> so the first thing is that, um, is this first beatitude is um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'll say a few things about, first of all, the blessed word, because it's gonna show up a number of times. It's just declarative. In fact, you could even think of it as Jesus is, is almost like praising the reality of who we are when we're really like him. And he's announcing it, and he's beginning it, and he's inaugurating it. He's setting off the initial charge right now. And he's going to set that on fire within each of you right now. It's like he's lighting the match, he's kindling it, right? And so there's a blessing that happens. But it's a blessing that, like I say, it's got a force to it, a life that comes from within, right? It's almost like he's setting you off on an adventure, but he's giving you the impetus for it. And that's the blessing. It's alive, it's an, it's a, an alive thing. And it is like happiness too. A lot of the translations are like happiness. We don't like to use that word um, sometimes because oftentimes happiness is associated with things that pass. It's something that happens, you know? And this is a much more permanent reality. But happiness is good in the sense that, man, we, we long for things to be beautiful and right and good and, and inspiring and delightful and exciting, you know? So happiness has a lot of those qualities. And he's saying happy are those, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs 
is the kingdom of heaven. Another thing I want to show, um, point out right here is he says, is the kingdom of heaven. It's yours. It is yours. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven is yours. There's a presentness to it. He's saying that's right now, and this is unique. Only the first and the eighth of the Beatitudes have that in them, okay? Only the first and the eighth have the present tense, and that's significant, and I'll explain why. The rest of them are, blessed are, you shall or will. And so it's, it's pointing you towards something in the future. It has a blessing right now, but it's pointing you towards something in the future. This one's unique. It's a blessing if you are poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of God. All right, he says poor in spirit. There's a lot of ways that the fathers of the church and throughout history interpreters have understood this. They've said, um, it's, it's a way of understanding that you know that you need. Think about Mary sitting at the foot of Jesus and Jesus says, this is the one thing necessary. Martha's scrambling around and we always scramble around. This is the one thing necessary. And it's to come and sit at his feet and to pray. But what's interesting about prayer is it's always associated with ascension. And that's why it's symbolized in things like ascent. I mean, incense, right? The incense that rises up into heaven. It's the prayers of the saint, the saints. And it's this way that we have connecting here on earth with God in heaven. And so it's, it's associated with things like incense. But also for the Israelites, whenever you say spirit, they hear also breath. And then wherever you say spirit and you're talking about God, they're hearing the spirit or breath of God. And that would make them remember, remember I'm talking about these words being generative, they would remember Genesis. Mankind is made by bringing together earth and breath and it's the breath of God. The thing is, we're made out of nothing until he forms us out of earth and then he breathes into us. And so what he's saying here is that there's a poverty to us apart from God. And the way that I'd like to suggest that you make this practical is uh, to take up what I call breathing prayer. I've talked about this before. Um, every, every day you'd have, every day you've had the morning and the evening sacrifice and they were often prayers of incense, right? That was one of the ways that they'd understand it, which meant prayers of ascent. And that's because it's a daily thing. And then Paul would say, I want you to pray continually all the time. Well, the only thing we do continually all the time, other than circulation, is breathe. And if you don't breathe, you're dead. Living, breathing, life is in the breath. So one of the ways that we can really enter into the truth that we depend upon God and we're poor other than him is that we breathe him. I've talked about this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the Jesus prayer. Breathe that with every breath. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Look it up, it's the Jesus prayer. Talk to me after the service, but breathe it because you need God, you need the breath of God. If you don't breathe, you're dead. This is the truth at the base of our existence as, as inheritors of the kingdom of God. This is how it starts, is to know that we need to breathe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And so breathe him in. There's this one version of breathing prayer that I do, I actually breathe quickly and I'm breathing the entire time the Jesus prayer. And then I'll stop breathing for a while. I, I can hold my 
breath up to three minutes. By the way, I, I learned how to do this not because I was seeking some weird way of praying, but because it actually got me to regulate my heart rate. I've talked to you about this before. I can explain it to you later. It was a biological necessity. It was a necessity. <laughs> so for me, it was like, yeah, I learned a necessity here. I need God, and I need to actually learn how to breathe because when I did this, it actually set my heart rate back into a normal pace, which was beautiful. But in the meantime, I learned a lot about what I'm describing. So my life depends upon God. And so I, I do this breathing. I breathe really quickly for like 30 or 40 breaths. And then I hold my breath, and I just relax. And I can settle into that. I can hold my breath for like three minutes, maybe a little bit more than that now. And, um, but you know what happens? Absolute necessity kicks in. I can't not breathe if I want to live. And that is the truth of our existence at the base level. This is step one, friends, the breath, to know that you need God and you need to breathe him in. Otherwise, you're dead. Right? The second blessing, the second fulfillment the blessing of the kingdom's presence here through Jesus that we can participate in, partake of, is to mourn. And if you're mourning, and he just says, are the, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what we have here is an extension of what began there. I think one of the gifts of the Spirit is that he helps us to sigh, to groan. These are, these are sighs and groans that are too deep for words, but it's when we begin to resonate with the truth of our existence apart from God. The truth of our existence is that, first of all, we're sinners, and that means that our life has been living in death. And to be sinner also means to be separated from God, which is the ultimate meaning of death. Think about it from a very human standpoint. When a loved one dies, it is absolutely horrible. You're not meant and you're not made to be separated from loved ones. We're not meant to be separated particularly from God who is the source of all life. And if we had never separated from him, and the promise is that we don't have to be, then we will never lose love. And we will never lose the togetherness that he promises um, for us who come into him and for all the saints who become our family. So the, the thing that he's calling us to do is to enter into the truth of it. Let that fact groan in you. I mean, Jesus does it when he stands outside of Lazarus' grave, he lets this same thing well up within him. And it's a mourning. That's a holy mourning, though. Because Lazarus is dead, it doesn't have to be this way. And Jesus, because he's the word, he then calls Lazarus forth. And that becomes a sign of what he's going to do with all of us. He will call us forth from the, from the grave and he will forever bring us into his home that he's prepared for us. We'll be together with him. It's a bit of a mystery as to whether exactly how that happens after we die, but it happens. And what Jesus is saying is that you will be comforted in the midst of the truth of that reality prayed, that groaning in the spirit. It becomes transformational. One of the things that is maybe helpful to know is that he's saying you'll be comforted. Sometimes we translate it, that as console. Now think about this. Like if you think of death as being separated, what's one of the words for being separated? Isolated? There's that root word, word, word isol, isolated, right? And that's when you're isolated, think about being in prison, in isolation. 
that could make you go crazy. That could make you go nuts because you're not made for that. It's a form of death. But when, when he says, if you're mourning in me and I'm here, by my spirit I am here, then I send comfort, which by the way is the same word he uses of the spirit, the comforter, the one who comes alongside. So you're isolated and then he comes alongside. You're consoled. You're isolated, you're consoled. You're all alone, you have somebody who comes alongside. And therefore, even in mourning. I think the way that I would say practically you could do this is, um, is that you process pain in his presence, right? You process pain in his presence. Whatever that is in your life, the absences, the longings, the loneliness, process that in his presence and he will minister to you comfort. He will come alongside you. By the way, notice that this is a future reality. It starts off with mourning, and then it says you will be comforted. We get to partake of that comfort in a very powerful way through the Spirit right now, and then there's a completion of it when every tear will be wiped away and we will never lose loved ones. We will always belong without interruption in the kingdom which is to come. So there's two ways in which it's the future if we enter into this. So those are the first two. You know, the breathing prayer, the mourning, the things aren't, aren't right. We need to be brought back together, not be alone. And then the third one, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want to say a few things about this. Meek does not mean weak. I know I've taught about that before. It's, it's more like a place of, of, um, of a kind of a poised trust. It's kind of a poised trust where you're, you know that things aren't really rightly connected to God and so you see that he has to reconnect them. He's involving you in that. By the way, that's where we get the concept of really true religion is how you reconnect things that are not connected to God back to him. You religament them. That's religion, right? I know I'm playing with a lot of words here, but trying to figure out ways of, you know, delivering what he's saying here. And the reason for this is that we have a lot of needs, and, um, and we could actually force it. We could actually take the power that we do have that's been given to us as human beings, and we could force it. That happens when you steal something from somebody else. Or say somebody doesn't cooperate with you and you get angry. The opposite of this anger, which is, an, I'm speaking of it as an unrighteous anger, is, is meekness. Like you have a power to make things happen the wrong way, and meekness says, yeah, you know what, I do need, but I'm going to orient myself to God, and I'm poised, looking to him to see how I use my power to connect to him. How do I use my power to connect to him? So you have this poised way of looking to him, not a wrathful way of saying, I'm going to make it happen. One of the people I think of here, this is um, Moses is described as the meekest man on, on the earth, which is one of the reasons he actually has the privilege of seeing God. He's very humble. He was humbled deeply for 40 years in the desert. Talk about isolation. But there's this one moment where he strikes the rock in anger because he's going to make things happen. And God said he, he didn't want him to do that. All you needed to do was speak. But he forced it. He wasn't meek in that moment. And for that reason, he didn't go into the promised land. He didn't inherit the earth of Israel at that moment. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a connection here. When you're poised and oriented to God, he's the source of all things. You trust him. You trust him, and then he gives you everything. 
I think one of the things that happens here, if you are poised in this way, you're a thankful person. And actually, everything is a gift. Everything is a gift. I would say one of the ways that you can cultivate this is thankfulness, gratitude, having a gratitude journal. You have needs, but be thankful. That's going to begin to orient your life to him as the source and not you as the source. Him as your wisdom and not you as your own wisdom. Him as your power, not you exercising your power on your own, which is often destructive. One of the things that, um, one of the quotes that I came across, I thought it was pretty cool, is that the meek are the heirs par excellence. You know, if you want to inherit the things that your heart longs for in, in this world and the next, be meek and poise yourself and look to him who will show you how to live your life, who will show you how to receive and be thankful. Next, we have our fourth. I am doing these sequentially, by the way, and I think it's, I think Matthew and Jesus means it on purpose to be sequential. I almost think it's like a whole program of how do we participate in the life of God? So the next one is um, the hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who actually hunger and thirst for righteousness. You could translate that as hunger and thirst for justice. For they shall be satisfied or sated. They'll be filled with what they are hungering and thirsting for. Um, You know, there's a lot of things that are wrong in this world. I think one of the fundamental things that's wrong with how we look at what's wrong is that we think we're going to exact a solution using our own power or the power of our tribe. And that's why there's so much ugly conversation. I wouldn't call it conversation. I wouldn't even call it discourse. I would call it yelling. There's so much yelling happening right now. And I think part of it is because the way that we look at things that are wrong and things that we want to be made right is that we think we're going to make it happen once again. And we start hungering and thirsting for a particular outcome. Like everybody should be even. Everybody should be this or that. And we end up doing injustices and become kind of ugly. I think one of the things that happens here is that Jesus is starting to point to himself. He's using these words hunger and thirst. He uh, was hungry to have that last supper with his disciples. He was hungry... um, and desiring that righteousness be fulfilled when he is submitted to the baptism with St. John the Baptist. He hungers and thirsts for our being made right and for all things being made right. And then he takes us into that. He fulfills that. How does he do that? He gives us his body as bread. He gives us his blood as drink. He gives us his spirit as living water. He's saying, in a sense, the only way that you're going to get things right is if you trust yourself to me and begin to participate in me because I'm justice. I'm your righteousness. You participate in me. You get connected to me. If you hunger and thirst for that, you will enter into things being made right because I am real food and real drink. So hunger and thirst not just for the bread and the the wine of this world, but for him who is the real food and drink. That's what we say in our Eucharist. Um, One of the ways that you could think about this is that justice, when you 
when it's, um, when you look at it from a classic standpoint, is that everything is given its proper due. So if you're married, your first love and your first affection after God is meant for your spouse. It would be unjust to give any of that affection to somebody else. That affection is meant for them. That's justice. You're giving them what they are due by virtue of the calling and the vows that you made. That's justice. Well, a lot of times we don't have that easy assessment. I just made something very clear. It's easy to get that. We often don't live that way, which is why we need Jesus to help us even live that out. But a lot of times we don't even know how to be just unless we have the mind of God, unless we have the mind of him who set things in order when he spoke it into creation. He's the the logos. He's that word that sets things in order. It's a word that makes, creates, and it's a word that sets things in order so life can flow, so you can be filled. So hunger and thirst for him. Begin to participate in him and have his mind and hear his words. Then maybe you can actually get something right. How much time should I spend with my friends? How much time should I spend on on, um, Netflix? Hmm? How much time should I spend thinking about my fix, whatever that might be? We, We all have that. Well, the best way to deal with that is to begin to hunger and thirst for him. He's going to set a lot of that in order. If you hunger and thirst for him and don't, and cultivate that hunger, by the way. Don't let it go. What happens here is that you're satisfied. One of the things that you could say here is that you've, you've become a person of agape. Agape is that love that overflows. You're so filled up with his feeding that you begin to overflow. You begin to overflow with a content. You're so contented that you have a content now that you can actually share. And that's, that's the blessing that you can have if you hunger and thirst. You can begin to have that even now. You might be reading your scripture if you're just every day. But if you're in Christ, he'll prompt you to read the scriptures, but there's, I'm asking you to do it too. The church has always said that. Part of how you live justice is read his words every day. Now, if you do that, you might actually share a word with somebody else you're starting to overflow. And that's a blessing. Well, that leads us right to the next one, which is mercy. You overflow, you become a person who overflows in and through mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Well, some of, some of this has to do with the kind of mercy that has, is, um, well, it's the mercy of being forgiven. That's a significant mercy because we do get things wrong and we weren't right. One of the very first things that Jesus gives to the disciples who abandoned him, abandoned him as he breathes mercy of forgiveness into them. Remember? He breathes that forgiveness into them. But then, of course, he says, and as I've forgiven you, forgive other people. And as I've been merciful to you, be merciful to other people. And so um, spread this living. This is, this is to forgive. This is to be forgiven and to be forgiving. It's to spread living, it's to partake of his living and then spread that living with others. That's why I call it agape. It's this kind of overflow of giving that happens when we really participate in him. Man, there's like this, this oil of gladness is the way that you could put it. That's what, in fact, at the root of the word mercy is oil. It's the olive oil. It's that's, that which is pressed out in Jesus' mercy when he prays for us in the garden. It's mercy and it comes from deep within him and it is a generative it's life-giving. Another way to think about it is it, it comes from this deep place within. It's like everybody has a womb. 
And that's how the Hebrews would have understood it. When you are pressed, you're like the olive grape. And when you're pressed as a mama, and you are pressed at, at that time of labor and delivery, out from you comes life. And there's this way in which when you're pressed and you are merciful and you're sharing that in an overflow, you're imparting a life. You're participating in the flow of life. Man, it's beautiful. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You just, it's like you enter into this circulation and it just continues. The mercy of God is endless. It's new every morning. So open wide up to it and let it flow through you and in you and through you and in you. And this is part of the blessing that happens. And it happens because we've been hungering for it and it begins to just flow. But let it flow. God is loving kindness. He is mercy. He's loving kindness. He's mercy. It's his identity. When you're merciful, you're living in the identity of who you really are in God. This is mercy. Right? So when this begins to really move through you, what starts to happen is that everything else starts to fade in terms of its importance except for God. Blessed are the pure in the heart, for they shall see God. There's a lot of different ways we could talk about this. This is, this is number six, the sixth beatitude. And um, pure means to be cleansed. So that means, in a way, think about the eye that Jesus talks about. It's not, it doesn't have other stuff stuck in it that blocks your vision. It's actually been washed out. It's actually like your conscience. It's been cleansed. And what happens when your conscience is cleansed? I would say this is a good way of thinking about it. Go to confession. Confess your sins to a brother or sister. They give you the word of forgiveness. That washes away. That's the grace. That's mercy washing away and cleansing your eye so you can see God. And it's also true that when that happens, when it's really pure, that means the eye is whole, and there's one thing that you care about. You know how you are when you're in, stuck, when you're in a romance and you're falling in love with somebody? I only have eyes for you. And the Hebrews understood it that way. They would say, you have to have a single eye. Who's it for? God. We don't have a single eye. We always covet this, we covet that. We're divided in our attentions. We're divided in our entertainments. We're occupied with other things. And what happens when we have a cleansed eye and a whole eye is that we begin to seek him who alone is worthy of our fundamental loyalty, our fundamental desire, our fundamental attention. And we long to see him when we're really who we are. And the promise is that we do see him. This, by the way, is what happened for Abraham, is he became so full of the vision of God that he became a person of light, and it was blinding to other people. Paul had a similar experience. The disciples at Transfiguration had a similar experience. Some of us have had that burst of light happen. When everything in our conscience and our imagination is set right, we actually can see God. And it's powerful, it's beautiful when we see him. And that's what we're made for ultimately. Well, then this leads to the seventh one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they're called son, they, they shall be called sons of God. So this is, this is like in a way, it's, it's saying you're finally who you really are when you're a peacemaker. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the source of that peace. We get to participate in it when we come into his kingdom and we act like real citizens of a kingdom of peace. 
Jerusalem, you could say it's the, the city of peace. And we've come home to the promised land fully when we're peacemakers. We're acting like citizens of God when we're peacemakers. We don't just come away from our disconnection from God and get reconciled to him through the grace of Jesus. We then minister that to other people too. And we work hard to bring people into the rest of reconciliation and forgiveness. We are spreading peace. Think about how the disciples treated Thomas. He did not show up in the upper room. He was absent from that. But they were peacemakers because they went out, they grabbed him, they brought him into the upper room, and then he saw Jesus too, and he said, my Lord and my God. I think part of how we can, we can share this is by praying to the Lord for ways that I can act like one of your sons or your daughters by bringing other Thomases to church, by bringing other Thomases to the presence of God. Pray about who, who he might have you draw back into him, who might not be reconciled to God, but you know, maybe a family member or a friend. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be sons of God. They'll be actually like God, shining as Moses was. The last one that this then leads to, because really, um, we, uh, we've completed things, and number seven, that's a sort of a perfect number. So when you're a peacemaker, you're really who you are. So why do we have eight here? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the rest of it is an extension or expansion of that same thing. So that's number eight. Well, I think what and a lot of the fathers said about this was that really it's, it's number one and number eight where both are is, blessed are, for theirs is the kingdom of God, is that when we are completed, when we've gone through everything that I've just outlined for you, that you are no longer of this world, you're a son of God, a citizen of the kingdom, ministering it to others, you are actually like a witness. A witness is a saint, especially. And what we have in this world is when we're really like God, we start to get friction. Friction, that's a heat. Sparks start to fly. But when a saint is bearing witness in the world and people are coming at you, you're going to work and they live and think differently than you do, but you live in integrity, you live in the truth of what we've been talking about today, and you actually stand upright in that because you're living in the power of God, then you sometimes get friction. Well, stay true. You're gonna be persecuted for that. Stay true. They might even mock you and make fun of you. Stay true. And then what's the promise? Is that theirs, that yours is the kingdom. I think that this is when your light really shines brightly. It's like shining in a dark age, like a star, you know? It's like Stephen. When Stephen has the world coming against him with stones, he looks like he's got a face of the angel. He's like Moses. The veil, friends, is removed when you bear witness. Number eight is the day of the resurrection. It's the beginning of the new creation. You're living in the kingdom. Think of it this way. Eight is the infinity symbol stood upright. You're now living in the upright position of the kingdom. And you're alive and you're shining with that reality. Even if people come against you, you're bearing witness and you're like an angel of God. You're a person of light. That's what we're called to.
Lord Jesus, you are the light from light, the true God from true God, and you've called us to be children of light and to share that, to enter into your beatitude. Lord, I pray that as we come now to the time of confession that we would remember the truth in the creed, we would remember the truth and mourn over our need for you and our confession, and that we would once again partake of you, a hungering and thirsting for you in the communion, and that we would go forth from this place as witnesses full of light, full of mercy, peacemakers to your glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.